it has been to continue to be a friend to Russia. Okay, Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets, first of all, just a reminder that Australian markets are closed. Uh, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.9%. Cosby in South Korea, down 1%. Futures markets pointing to losses of 350 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock with more business and finance updates. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine. The maximum temperature will be around 32 degrees. Sunny periods in the next couple of days, a bit windy during the weekend and then a few showers early next week. The temperature right now is 27 degrees and it's 76% relative humidity. Time's coming up to 8.31. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. President Biden has urged the world to come together in opposition to Russia's war with Ukraine and President Putin's veiled threat to use nuclear weapons. Addressing the United Nations General Assembly in New York, Mr. Biden said no one had sought conflict apart from Moscow. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase the sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Mr. Biden was speaking hours after Vladimir Putin ordered the mobilization of 300,000 Russian reservists. The move follows recent battlefield setbacks in Ukraine and comes a day after occupied areas in Ukraine announced snap referendums on joining Russia. The, U, the Attorney General of the New York State, uh, sorry, the Attorney General of New York State has filed a civil suit against Donald Trump and three of his adult children, accusing them of fraud. Letitia James said the former U.S. President's business, the Trump Organization, repeatedly overstated asset valuations and inflated his net worth to secure favorable loans. Ms. James said she's seeking 250 million U.S. dollars in penalties and a ban on the Trump's running businesses in New York. Here's the BBC's Sarah Smith. Claiming you have money you do not have is not the art of the deal, said New York Attorney General Letitia James. It is the art of the steal. She has filed a complaint against Donald Trump, as well as Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump and Eric Trump, accusing them of inflating the former president's net worth by billions of dollars. The case filed today is a civil suit, which could not result in any jail sentences. But Ms. James says she believes she has evidence several state and federal criminal laws have also been violated. The U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point as it seeks to rein in inflation. U.S. interest rates are now at their highest in nearly 15 years, and the Fed has signaled that further rises are likely. The BBC's Michelle Fleury has more. This is the fifth time the U.S. Central Bank has raised interest rates since March in response to prices that have been rising at their fastest pace in four decades. The move comes despite warnings that the cost of controlling inflation could be a harsh economic downturn. Along with a large rate increase, Federal Reserve policymakers signaled their intention to continue hiking next year. By raising interest rates, America's Central Bank is making it more expensive to borrow money in the hopes that people will spend less, easing the upward pressure on prices. The danger is, if they go too far, it could choke economic growth and cause a spike in joblessness. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. Today, we're looking at whether sport events are making a comeback in Hong Kong. The SAR football team played a friendly against Myanmar at Mong Kok Stadium last night, the first international match since the COVID outbreak. This comes on the heels of the announcement that the Hong Kong Marathon may well be back on in February, while the Rugby Sevens is set for November. Does all this portend a return of competitive sport to the city following the long disruption caused by COVID? Will this be enough momentum for more sporting events to return to the city what about local athletes? How will they make up for lost time? After 9.15, are we living on the planet of the ants? A new study has come to the surprising conclusion that for every human on the planet, there are probably two and a half million ants. What does this mean for the ecosystem? Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call at 233 Joining our discussion this morning, we have on the line Professor Patrick Lau from the Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health at Hong Kong Baptist University and Sean Moore, the founder of the sports marketing firm Elite Sports Asia. Good morning to the both of you and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. So um, first of all, Professor Lau and yes, uh, good, morning. Mr. good morning and uh, Mr. Moore, um, did you manage to watch the football match last night? Uh, I didn't. <laughs> I was, was busy with writing proposals. <laughs> right. How about you, Jenny? Jenny, did you watch it? No, I'm tired. Don't uh, watch football. Sorry. <laughs> all right, that's that's too bad. I missed it too. I mean, but I know it was like a two win, um, a two nil win for Hong Kong. Um, but I'm sure if you want to watch it, you can uh, watch the highlights of it somewhere. Um, now, Mr. Moore, um, apart from last night's match, um, the Hong Kong football team will play another international friendly over the weekend, and in exactly two weeks' time, we'll have the Hong Kong Masters snooker tournament, and of course, in November, the Rugby Sevens. So it seems like compared sporting events are returning to the city. Um, these events must be a good sign, right? Well, I think certainly they are. Um, and it, the condition is starting to align a bit better for sport and for the return of sport, which is fantastic. And uh, Professor Lau, would you say that sport events are, are making a comeback in Hong Kong? Yes, this is a must. I believe the world is changing and everything regarding the pandemic measures are actually trying to get back to so-called normal, the new normal, yes. Yeah, so Sean Moore, um, you, you're very experienced in promoting sports events in Hong Kong, including the Rugby Sevens in the past. What are the current challenges in marketing these sporting events? Uh, I, I think there's certainly the demand. I mean, I believe the pandemic is a bit of a black swan event, so it's something that we have to survive and we have to withstand. But structurally, the demand for sports is growing around the world. Uh, the role of sports is, is really massive now for tourism, so I'm very... Uh, encouraged by the creation of the Culture, Sports and Tourism Bureau for Hong Kong. So all these factors, I think, uh, have not really changed. It's just we've kind of been on the sidelines for a few years and we're all jumping to get back in. Uh, and do you have any idea how many international sport events have been cancelled over the past uh, two to three years? Yeah, I think it's probably easier at this stage, you know, to count which events we've had. Um, so it's kind of a major disruption in sport. Dozens of international events, I think the M-Mark events, so sort of our premier government-supported events have been cancelled over the last couple of years, and then really hundreds of local events, if you count uh, stopping local football and local rugby leagues and cricket and things like that. Uh, so there's, there's been a, a very, very significant impact. 
So, so we're having this conversation today, partly because it's a back and forth with the Hong Kong Marathon. Uh, you know, the organisers um, said they it's not going to go ahead, and the government then said, um, uh, "Please go ahead." So now it's supposed to happen in February. Uh, in fact, they they are saying they have can up to twenty five thousand participants. Do you think we can get that many participants? Uh, certainly. <laughs> Will the COVID restrictions be a problem? In my in my uh, perspective, and you know, I invite uh, Dr. Lamb to, to comment as well. But you know, the greatest strength of the marathon is it's Hong Kong's largest participatory event. Uh, I worked on that event for over a decade. We went from 600 runners to 60,000 plus. Um, when you, you know, which is fantastic. And in a, in a normal time, in an old normal time, it's, um, it's something we really we really should be proud of. Right now, under these conditions, it's more challenging. It's more difficult to bubble an event like that. Um, so I can understand both sides, uh, the frustration on both sides, really, the organizers and the government. Um, but I think now what we're seeing is, is everybody working together. And I want to start talking about flexibility and adjusting to conditions because this is what's going to be uh, supremely important now for us to get events, not just sport, but, you know, mice uh, events and, and all the conventions and everything. These things must come back to Hong Kong. So we have to be flexible. And I think we have to prioritize uh, what needs to be done to, to help bring those events back safely. What do you mean by flexibility? What flexible and what? What I want to say is, you know, um, if we're going to talk today about how do we get sport back and how quickly does it come back, events like the Hong Kong Sevens, events like the Marathon, Formula E, you know, they're, they're typically part of global series where calendars are fixed, you know, well in advance, years out in, in some cases. So it's not just, you know, all of us deciding on the ground, this is great and we're ready to go again. We have to be able to provide some sort of certainty and some sort of confidence about what conditions look like and what the market looks like for us, uh, not next month, but next year at this time. That is the key, really, to, to being able to get back um, all sorts of events and so really getting Hong Kong back, back to the new normal. Right. Um, so right now we have that three plus four arrangements for, for um, inbound travelers. There's a lot of talk right now about zero plus seven or some people saying zero plus four. Is zero plus anything at all? Is, is that, do, you, do you think that's helpful for these sporting events? Uh, yes, for sure. I mean, right now we're, we're one of the problems that I think many Hong Kong events face is we're really a large outlier in the world in terms of these conditions. Um, so we just need to, you know, a zero plus anything is much better than a 21 days, you know, minus, minus everything. So the directions are positive. We're, we're going in the right direction. Uh, I believe we're doing it properly, safely, and smartly. Um, but to be fair, now the rest of the world has turned that corner, and I think we also have to show the rest of the world how Hong Kong is going to turn that corner. And I believe we can. And uh, from what you're saying, uh, there seems to be uh, impetus for, for everything to uh, get going again in terms of uh, sporting events. Uh, but do you think uh, um, when it does happen, uh, do you think there will be enough uh, experienced personnel and venues? Uh, this is uh, really a big question for me. I want to say from, from my experience over 25 years, the infrastructure is there, the, the hardware is still here, of course. I'm really, really concerned on a personal level about the software. Um, you know, over the so many events and so many years, I work with many people who, are, who used to be in my industry who are, who are no longer. They were adjacent. They were event management people, lighting people, sound technicians, staging people. Um, and I find now that they've all had to, you know, kind of find sort of more traditional work or, or more, you know, more, more standard industry. So the software part of the event is what I'm really looking at. It, it's not a question of does everybody want to come back? It's, it's how can we come back and how close are we to coming back? And I think, you know, this kind of 
uh, things like the sevens and the snooker events, that's going to show a little bit about what the, the support ecosystem looks like, which is hugely, hugely important to getting events up and going. Yeah, sure, the manpower will be there. I mean, but, but the Rugby Sevens say they're talking about possibly a bubble arrangement. Mm. Um, we all know that the Rugby Sevens is a lot about the spectator, people mm. screaming from the south stand and all that. Uh, is, is it the same Rugby Sevens without those people? Well, I think those people are still there. The, the difference between the, the rugby and the marathon is, as I mentioned, it's the bubbling. We're, we're very simple. We're bubbling, you know, 16 international teams, uh, double, triple vaccinated guys coming in that we've kept in one spot and, and by themselves for the whole time. And then they come out on the pitch and they do their work. Then they go home and they go on to their next event somewhere else around the world. So really, I believe what you'll see is the band experience won't be that unusual for people, certainly who've been residing in Hong Kong for the last couple of years. You're definitely going to be able to cheer. You're just going to have to maybe cheer a bit louder because you're going to be wearing a mask unless you're a consumer. And uh, Professor Lau, um, just now we, we heard from uh, Mr. Moore that uh, he, he's not worried about the hardware. He's worried about the software, about uh, personnel who, who can uh, organize these events. Uh, what about our athletes? Uh, do you think they're ready? Um, I think they, they're always ready. The, thing, the, the problem or the issue is the training schedule has been influenced in the past two, three years during the pandemic. So what they need right now is a very stable, very clear schedule of all the events in Hong Kong and all over the world so they can plan for it in advance. Otherwise, they will be in the chaos and they don't know where to go, where to train and when to train. Yeah. Which particular sport has been particularly affected? For all elite sports, I would say all elite sports um, um, under this pandemic because when we, when we, prepare, when we prepare for the uh, elite competition over the world, we are not saying that one or two months that we, we have may be able to climb to the peak performance. We need to uh, train it throughout the whole year to arrange which competition could be a, um, a warm-up event, which one is the target event. That will influence a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes training and uh, uh, therapies for the injury recovery. Uh, so, so this is, we are talking about the whole year and the whole season training arrangement, not only one event. Is it easy for them to catch up? I mean, if they've uh, missed out on uh, training? They have no choice, though. You know, um, they have some some points to get uh, for the Asian Games or the Olympics. So they have no no choice. What they can do is trying to find the best way and more convenience for them to uh, attend the games in advance. So uh, we would say um, very simple procedures for the quarantine or no quarantine will be the best choice for them to choose. Under this sense, if there if the city or country have no additional quarantine measures, they will go there. I, I believe this is as simple as this. Yeah, uh, but the Hong Kong athletes, they did incredibly well in the last Olympics. I mean, the swimmer, the, in, in, in fencing and table tennis. Um, some would say, actually, you know, the training is doing just fine. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I think those are, those, I mean, I think, we, you know, this is one thing I want to talk about. Uh, we're talking a lot about elite sport and the impact on, but there's, a, there's an impact across all sports in Hong Kong. Uh, because, you know, there's so much participatory sport has been uh, canceled or we haven't been able to do these things. So, you know, the elite sport in some way is it's hugely impacted, but also it's, it's kind of bubbled because it's already elite rugby, swimming, these sports that are successful, where, you know, the athletes that have been successful, frankly, uh, most likely were training quite often overseas. Um, so that, that is an issue. But for me, it's the, 
the wider impact. These major international events we have here, what they do is they create interest around sport. They can create passion. They create new players. And this is what we've been missing. And for me, it's a real tragedy that after that uh, historic performance in Tokyo, uh, you know, conditions kind of conspired against us all, that we couldn't really turn that uh, amazing, incredible success into really uh, strong grassroots participation numbers and a growth trend in sports. And that's purely because of the pandemic. We still have the time. We're still building up now to, to 2023 in Paris. So, you know, I'm hoping that this next year will be something where we're turning those gold medals into really solid uh, long-term gains in, across all sports. How, how, how can we do that? What suggestions do you have? Well, I mean, I think it's about how you can put in systems, you know, behind that awareness. Uh, there's many studies we can look at. Uh, you know, uh, I'll throw one out around Australia when, when they host the, the Rugby World Cup many years ago and they won the World Cup. Uh, their participation numbers in rugby union as opposed to, uh, you know, rugby league or Australian rules football, you know, they really skyrocketed. So first of all, you have to have awareness. That's number one. And then you must have opportunity to engage, to play, and then you must have opportunity to advance at the elite level. So everything in elite sports starts at a large, vibrant, grassroots pool. And that's what we really need to focus on. Uh, I think, for Hong Kong. Yeah, so Professor Lau, you at Baptist University, um, Sean Moore just pointed out, it's, it's about that grassroots pool of um, athletes. Have, has there been a change in trying to attract young people into, into this grassroots pool in the last few years? Uh, under the pandemic, I don't think so, because according to the COVID-19 studies in exercise science. Um, it seems we have a downward trend um, for the muscle participation, especially for the screen time and uh, screen time increase, secondary behavior increase, physical inactivity time increase. So this is not uh, optimistic for those uh, people, especially the childhood obesity is also increasing. You, you mentioned, Patrick Lau, that, that a, a huge part of training is about competing overseas, right? What are, so, so can you give us some examples of the major competitions that Hong Kong athletes uh, have not been or are not able to go to? Um, badminton, um, tennis, yeah. Where, um, where are these events? In U.S. and Europe, all over the world, I mean, the major stations, the major events are, are host every month. Uh, some of the athletes actually, they prefer not coming back to Hong Kong and stay there in, in Europe because the quality measures in Europe is much relaxed than Hong Kong. So it will definitely influence those um, elite athletes. And uh, Professor Lau, earlier, um, Mr. Moore, he was saying that uh, sport events, uh, they, they help promote interest in sports. Uh, how would you describe it, um, people's interest in sports right now? Uh, I would say um, if you look at the uh, habit they have been developing in the past two, three years, um, their interest um, decreased, I would say, because people get used to um, to the indoor games instead of outdoor activities. Although we see during the weekends many people go out, but this is still minority. Most of the people, they are having a very sedentary lifestyle and they can use it. According to the exercise and behavior change theory, this is quite difficult to get them back 
once they develop that sedentary lifestyle because you have to provide additional values, attractions to make them come back even for the um, a little bit more physical population. So we are going to face a very difficult time to motivate people back to the normal. Oh, can we start in the schools? Can we can we just get the children to be more interested in oh, sport? Oh, actually, uh, um, you know, as early as possible, uh, from kindergarten, primary, this is all the time we are doing. But the thing is, the very stressful and academic pressure in Hong Kong schools um, is it is it, very very tough competition. I would say uh, not very optimistic. Yeah, because uh, I know some schools yeah, they just. I want to inject a, a little bit of a, of, of a note of confidence here, though. I totally agree with what the professor has just said, and, you know, 20, over 20 years <clears throat> trying to build sports culture here. I, I agree with, you know, the headwinds we're facing. At the same time, in the wake of a pandemic where sport has proven to increase your immune systems, boost your mental uh, and physical resilience, these are, I think, really strong points now for us to, to share with and impress on local parents. This is something I think where the moment and the juncture we're in might just help to break through what has been a very difficult wall to, to crack for, for many years, in my opinion. So I think this and also with that still reflected glow from Tokyo, and I believe also, you know, our, our further immigration in the mainland, where I believe they really understand the importance of a sports culture for boosting your international reputation, bringing your communities together, getting a community vision and, and a solid you know, achievable goals. I think these are all things that give us that chance actually to now get people out and get a ball in their hand. As, and, you know, as an American, uh, you know, I know everything about a sedentary lifestyle, and that's something that I'm really, you know, very keen that we don't see this kind of thing entrenched in many parts of Asia where it is becoming more prevalent. So it's something that we need to address quickly for our public health. That's a very good point. I mean, in, in mainland China, when, when a young person is a talented athlete, they are given, you know, a lot of kudos, a lot of uh, training opportunities. Um, how do we bring that to Hong Kong, Professor well, Lau? Yeah. I think this is important. <laughs> it is a job in China, so your paid sport has a, has, a, has a profile that is something that, you know, we, we, we value and that we show that we value. Professor Lau? Yeah, um, if you're trying to refer to the whole nation system um, used by uh, China mainland, I don't think it could be uh, transplanted to Hong Kong at the moment because this is a very dominated and top-down approach. And, you know, the, the history of developing this whole nation system is due to the poverty of China when they uh, reopened the whole country into the world in 1979. They think what they want to do is to uh, promote the sport performance, the medal winning, but they don't have enough resources. That's why they concentrate everything to do one event. Under that kind of training, they develop a very specific population system. Um, it seems very functional, and uh, according to the past 30, 40 years of the sport, the medal winning in the world. But under this system, the parents must agree to how they arrange their uh, talented sport kids into the uh, sport school. Uh, under that kind of sports school, it is very unusual, and for the child development, uh, they almost they forfeit their uh, education development to to uh, to a professional athlete. So, I don't think Hong Kong parents are willing to uh, 
gave up their children to academic development instead of to be a professional player. And under the successful rate of uh, the elite professional player in the whole world, the percentage is not high. So this is a very functional system, but under the situation of Hong Kong, I don't think we can uh, transplant it totally. But of course, we can refer to the coaching, to the uh, uh, overseas uh, training. We can refer to some of the good elements, but not whole system, though. No, I think it's about how you prioritize sport and the role that sport can play in improving your uh, cohesion in your community and also improving your international reputation, which I believe right now sport has a really big role to play to help the world understand where Hong Kong is and help the world understand that Hong Kong is getting back into business very soon. Right, and uh, earlier, earlier when you were talking about Professor Professor Lau, earlier when you're talking about how to uh, promote interest of sport in schools, I was just going to point out it's a bit difficult because uh, some schools they only have like one uh, uh, physical education lesson a week, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so yeah. I mean, looking ahead, we've got the policy address coming up. Do you expect anything in the policy address that can help the sports community? Yes, definitely, definitely. This is a very good observation from you. You know, basically under the education bill. Um, 5% of the total education time should be allocated to a physical education. But um, some of the schools, they cut down from two periods of PE a week to one. And this is not ideal. Um, the reason behind is um, we don't have a PE law under the system. You know, when we refer to the China development, in, 19, in 1990s, they, they established a law to... Um, make sure the schools have to deliver two PE or three PE lessons a week. So actually, Hong Kong has been uh, raising this concern to the government, uh, but uh, it doesn't happen in the past 20 years. So I believe to establish a PE law under school system will be a must, and to ensure the school children participation in normal PE. Yeah, we do. We do have an elite um, athletes program where where the, some of the best. Um, uh, high school students, um, they go to the elite sports center. They get a lot of support for training. Expanding that will help, maybe. Yeah, definitely. You know, when we talk about how to promote elite sport, definitely we need to uh, do the grass sport promotion. But at the same time, we see the the Hong Kong SR has been doing a very good thing because, as you just mentioned, in the Tokyo Olympic and uh, uh, Beijing. With the Olympics, Hong Kong athletes has been doing very good. So under this star effect, it actually promotes a lot of mass sport participation, fencing, swimming, table tennis, badminton. So I believe we should maximize the value of the star effect at the moment. It will help. Shomo, do you agree? Star effects? Completely agree. I'm a sports marketer, so for me, you know, to have stars, to have gold medals, to have, you know, at present is, is so, so instrumental. And like I said, it's just been a little bit of a tragedy of timing that, you know, we had this golden moment at a time where we haven't been able to really dig down and get behind it. But we do have a year out now from 2023. We have our stars in place. They're young, they're handsome, they're ready to go again. So we must get behind them and we must get everybody behind them now. All right. So I have an email here from Peter. He says, um, I am the chairman of a major local international event that uh, we have not been able to hold for the last three years due to the COVID restrictions. The event relies on international participation to meet the government funding criteria, which, of course, has been impossible since early 2020. 
you need to look further than just eliminating the quarantine measures. The impact of the Amber vaccine pass restriction also needs to be considered. Most venues where MLIE events are hosted will not allow holders of Amber vaccine passes to enter their premises, something that is mandated by the government. You cannot expect to attract international participation in this kind of grassroots event if visiting sports people are prevented from entering the venue for up to seven days after arrival. Um, Mr. Moore, do you have any uh, comments? Yeah, Peter, Peter, I commiserate with you. I understand exactly where you are. This is where we've all been for the last couple of years, and I, I, you're 100% valid. Those comments are truly valid. And I think they go to a little bit of a larger issue, which is really important as well, that I feel there's a little bit of a disconnect between some of our government bureau that supports sport uh, and their understanding of how sport needs to operate and what kind of time frames it needs and just scale and consideration there. Uh, the only thing I can say to Peter is if we look where we are, you know, I believe we'll be at zero plus seven soon. So certainly on the heels of that, we are going to get to a point where uh, there'll be further relaxations. Now is the time. Some, I think now to talk about COVID and events is a sunk cost for my clients. So I'm, I'm only advising them now, you know, forward looking, right? Because actually, if you want to have an event in 2023, you need to decide that almost immediately now. And, and I understand that you need that clarity, but you need to at least start to plan that procedure. And, and really, like for the sevens, we're, we're going in. All right. All right, Mr. Moore. And Mr. Moore, unfortunately, I have to stop you here because uh, we have to take a short break for the news. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Sean Moore, the founder of the sports marketing firm Elite Sports Asia. Also, many thanks to Professor Patrick Lau from the Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health at Hong Kong Baptist University. And uh, we'll continue our discussion in three minutes time when we will be joined by swimming coach John Yu and Matt Patterson, the founder of Mini Sport Hong Kong. Now a quick look at the weather. Um, it'll be uh, mainly fine. The top temperature will be around 32 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies. And at the outlook, sunny periods in the next couple of days. And uh, windy during the weekend. Right now it's 28 degrees, relative humidity 72%. The system, thereby cheating all of us. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. In the first half of the program, we are mainly focused on the return of sport events in Hong Kong. But what about our future sporting talent? Are kids doing more sports now than a year or two ago? To tell us more, we're now joined on the line by swimming coach John Yu and Matt Patterson, the founder of Mini Sport Hong Kong. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning. And uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, uh, Mr. Yu, what is the situation like? Are more kids learning how to swim? Uh, yes, we definitely have seen um, all the uh, interest coming back ever since uh, the government allowed the swimming pool to reopen in May. Um, although having a slightly shorter summer break for most of the local students, we definitely have seen the interest coming back. And uh, Mr. Patterson, is that what you're also seeing? Or are more kids joining your classes? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, especially in the last two or three months, as the weather's getting cooler, that helps with outdoor activity. Um, and, you know, obviously the opening of, of, of courts and um, sports facilities has definitely been a factor. Yeah, so, so Matt Peterson, you know, um, mini sport Hong Kong, you know, children's sport is so much about communities, isn't it? I mean, I remember when my children were little, when they played um, football or rugby, it's, it's the parents cheering them on, on the sides of the fields. 
have those communities dis disappeared? Um, I think it is uh, fair to say they're certainly returning. Um, and it was something that was, was greatly missed by Hong Kong as a, as a society during the pandemic. Um, you know, it's not so much just the sport itself that children miss, it's the process of going to the games, meeting their friends, um, you know, whatever the processes are after the games, you know, going for a meal with their family. And this kind of it does create um, a focal point for the weekend or perhaps the, the after school um, agenda of a family. So I think certainly this is a key period that we're entering into now. I know a lot of children are returning to full day schools. Um, that, I mean, doing longer hours than they perhaps have ever been used to, especially for the younger ones. And I just think that right now it's very important for parents and families to balance that with a healthy outside-of-school activity and um, sort of an active break for the children And because it is a long day at school and we understand that that can create some fatigue. But, um, you know, for many children, sitting down in a classroom all day can be just as tiring as running around in the park all day. So we do... You know, we have, we have seen that, you know, in the first few weeks of the school year, there wasn't quite the uptake that we were expecting. And we do think because we focus on the under six age group almost exclusively, um, I think that was a result of parents perhaps, um, you know, letting children settle into the full day school and letting their schedules settle down before um, adding extracurricular activities onto their agenda, which we are seeing a massive increase in now, especially as the weather cools down, as I mentioned before. And uh, Mr. Yu, I know you, you also uh, coach uh, older students at schools. Uh, have you noticed any major difference uh, in, uh, for example, their, their fitness level or, or skill? Uh, yes, of course, definitely. Um, the, the biggest thing that we have seen ever since we started this new school year is because um, we have basically lost more than 300 days of swimming pool days uh, since the pandemic started. And... Um, we were seeing a lot of the children in the secondary basically can't swim because they have lost three years of opportunity in doing their swimming lessons in their primary PE. So, so that's a very obvious sign that we see the first thing. Um, it's not about the competitiveness of it. It's more about their water safety now. So that's the biggest thing we see. So, so is that something that the government can do, you know, when we, uh, if we uh, open up further to help encourage children to take up sport? Um, yes, I, I think so, because at the moment, um, swimming pools are still under uh, capacity limitations at 85%. And also, um, unfortunately, some swimming competition events are to be staged at closed door, so we are also losing the support from parents and the time for them to sort of like join together and support their kids and cheer for the ones that they support. Um, so I think the government can sort of like um, at the same time be looking at their current measures to see whether or not they can further loosen some of the measures that we have in place. And at the moment, I think uh, what schools are also trying to do is to um, identify those that are quite weak in their swimming and then try to encourage them to enroll either in the in-school um, co-curricular program or any outside swimming program in order to help them to build that water safety level up again. Mm -hmm. right. so, so some some so you said uh, some secondary school students they don't even know how to swim. What about Correct. um what about um students who who take part in actual swimming training? I mean, um, it's really hard to pick up once you stop. Uh, are are many kids in that situation? Uh, yes, to be honest, yes. I think uh, during the pandemic, um, only the swimming pool at the sports institute remained open for the majority of the time, and basically all other swimming pools, including school swimming pools, are forced to close. And like I said, 
300 plus days in the past two years, and um, we have one superstar, Siobhan, being uh, in the Olympic, having a world record, and we basically have lost 300 days in training <laughs> regarding that. So a lot of the, not just schools, a lot of the swimming clubs, a lot of the swimming teams are now actually at their rebuilding stage, trying to recruit more swimmers, putting the kids back into the Learn to Swim program, and then basically start all over again. Mm-hmm. Are there some kids who've dropped out of swimming training? Um, not, not really. We actually, it's quite the opposite. We see them quite keen on coming back. Like, like I think we both um, realize that they have lost so much things. They've been online learning for so long. So a lot of the kids are actually happier than before coming back to commit to the sports that they like. Before the break, um, Peterson, before the break, uh, Professor Patrick Lau, who, who works with the uh, PE department um, with Baptist University, was saying that the problem is that in schools, sometimes they, there's so much focus on exams that kids only really get one PE lesson per week. What can we do to, um, you know, improve on that so that children just in general find sport to be rewarding? Well, I do think that is, a, is an issue. Uh, certainly a lot of the schools that we partner with um, deliver PE services for, uh, you know, we have uh, very condensed sessions, maybe even 20-minute sessions where the kids come in and out. And, it's, um, and there are other activities led throughout the week by their own staff, but it's certainly not quite uh, enough, in my opinion. And I think a lot of it, until the government, you know, changes their policy on that, then uh, I think a lot of it does definitely depend on healthy act lifestyles for the family outside of, of um, school because there's a lot of opportunity in Hong Kong. We have a lot of great, you know, natural resources uh, with hikes and beaches and, uh, you know, quite a, quite a generous um, allocation of sports facilities for such a small city. Uh, so I think, you know, the opportunity is certainly there for families and I do think that it's families that really need to harness this opportunity of things opening up and, uh, and, and you know, look for outside of school uh, opportunities for their children to, to thrive and, and, and become healthy and uh, active individuals. Yeah, isn't it a lot about affordability as well? When when kids don't get to do those things in schools, parents who can afford it um, will will pay for all this extra uh, curricular activities for everything from rugby to sailing to to hockey. If the parents can't afford it, the children miss out. Isn't isn't that a fact? I think that that's true to its extent. Um, certainly, there are different. You know, there are, we're blessed also in Hong Kong with a wide range of very high-quality sports coaching providers um, you know, across many sports at different price points with different group sizes. And um, certainly, you know, there is usually a financial implication of sport activity um, to some degree. Um, but you know, you know, going for a long walk or a run or playing football with your child is is, is free, and we do have the facilities to do that. So I think it's about finding a balance and finding the activities that are yielding the best results for the child, um, both socially, emotionally, and physically, um, along with, you know, the support from the family, for sure. And uh, Mr. Patterson, I know some parents uh, with kids who, who may have started uh, taking, for example, rugby lessons when they were young, but uh, stopped during the pandemic, and they just haven't uh, gone back to the sport. I mean, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's important to... Um, I mean, there's a natural dropout anyway, so I think we have to factor that in, and uh, you know, perhaps COVID can be blamed for some of these things sometimes. And you know, I think it's important that children are exposed to multiple. That, I mean, the belief of our company is it's multiple sports. We 
you know, rotate children between four sports on a weekly basis, uh, just so they have the, the, the um, experience to make their own decisions when it comes to what they would like to pursue in sport. So I do think that perhaps, you know, you might see a dropout from a child in rugby, but it's not to say that it's dropped out of sport necessarily. And I think just keeping, you know, a, an exciting, varied agenda for your child when it comes to sport is, is really the cornerstone of, of maintaining a long, you know, lifelong love for sport. Um, so, you know, obviously there's dropout and COVID might account for some of that, but certainly, um, you know, perhaps if my advice to parents would be if you've seen a specific sport being dropped by a child, then, um, you know, don't take that as a, an attitude towards sport, but perhaps look for other activities that might, in, you know, engage them. What about what about the mask wearing? How does mask wearing um, in in a in a sport field affect children's performance and their interest, frankly? Uh, so, Mister Yu, I assume that there's no swimming masks at the moment, uh, or, or if there ever was, then um, I'm sure they're not there anymore. Certainly for um, for the activities that we do, um, we allow children to take their masks off. Obviously, when they play sport, we do deal with the very early years um, students. And uh, some of them have only really known life with masks on, and actually we do find that some of them don't want to take their masks off, uh, which has been um, an interesting uh, observation from our team. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly something that is uh, is something we're, we're trying to encourage kids to, to do uh, in, in classes. They don't want to take them off because they're scared they'll catch COVID, or they're just used to wearing masks anyway? Um, it's hard to really gauge the actual um, reason behind it, but a lot of them, like I said, are sort of between the age of two and five that we deal with, and many just, I'm not sure if it's a comforting thing, I'm pretty sure they're not um, overly concerned with the, you know, the actual details of the virus, but it's more to do with the comfort factor, I would believe. Right. And Mr. Yu, um, earlier, earlier we talked about uh, what our earlier guest talked about, about how we need uh, to have more um, physical education in school. Um, what's your view on that? Do you think we need uh, more physical education lessons in school? Yes, yes, I do feel it that way. Um, because, I mean, um, if you look at it from a long-term athletic development point of view, kids need to stay active when they're young. And the best time to do it is when they are at school. So I definitely think that by increasing the amount of PE lessons, if possible, during a school day or even within the school week, definitely will help. It doesn't have to be at a competitive level. Kids just to have fun, enjoy, stay active, run around, play with the ball, work on the fundamentals. And that will definitely help a lot. And also that will help a lot of the parents. Like um, we were talking about people who really can't afford the outside providers. If we could do something at school level, that will definitely help our kids to stay active for life, if you know what I mean. How, how many hours a week do you think it's suitable for, say, primary school children? I, I would say at, at least they, they should have at least uh, 20 to 30 minutes per day that they're active. Okay. What, what was your view, uh, Mr. Patterson? Yeah, I would agree. I think, uh, you know, three hours per week would be a, a good target to aim at. Um, and, yeah, obviously, you know, consistency is another factor. So 30 minutes a day sounds like a pretty good prescription for that. And uh, Mr. Yu, looking at uh, the, uh, the students that you've been training, does it look like um, we will? Um, I mean, I mean, how, how does it I mean, look? I mean, does it look like we'll be having a more um, uh, talented uh, athletes in, in future? Uh, I definitely hope so. Um, as long as we no longer have to face an extended suspension. <laughs> 
We definitely will. I'm quite positive on that because um, as far as I know, um, um, since the last few months, uh, we have had some new age group records. We have a couple of new records being set by a lot of our local consumers in Hong Kong. And that's a very positive sign saying that if we have consistency in training, I believe Hong Kong athletes, not just in swimming, they can all do well. Yeah, we, we, we talked earlier about how in mainland China, they have very rigorous um, sport training program in schools. How can we uh, harness that? I mean, can, can the Hong Kong kids go and train there? How will that help? Uh, I think uh, some sort of, if you're talking about exchange program, um, mm. that would definitely help because I think in China, they, uh, they have a lot of um, athletes at professional levels. And um, we, we actually have been visiting some of the teams in, in China, in some of the local cities like Guangzhou and Shenzhen before, uh, before the pandemic. And they have a very good system in place. But that also requires the cooperation from schools fitting in their learning schedule. Right. And, uh, okay. and uh, like I mentioned earlier in the program, that the policy address is coming up. And Mr. Yu, what do you expect from the policy address? Um, I, I would like to see more communication between the government and the sports industry regarding um, um, any uh, future development and any measures regarding anything that's happening in the future. Um, I know the government is behind a, a big project of the Kaita and uh, whether or not the community can be more involved and whether or not if anything happens in the future uh, or any policy changes or measures needed to be put in for any sports industry, whether or not he's uh, willing to be on the proactive basis, reaching out to us. Uh, rather than in the past, we've seen a lot of cases that we basically have to voice out and ask. Such as, such as you, voice, you said you have to speak up on, on, on something to demand certain policy change. What, what exactly do um, you have to speak up yeah, on? Yeah, especially when it comes to the, the policy of um, um, if we have to uh, have seen any other um, pandemic or anything similar to that, whether or not the government is simply looking at closing all facilities without um, um, doing it on a scientific basis. Okay, uh, Mr. Patterson, opening of facilities based on scientific basis. Do you have anything to say about that? Like the sports well, I think field? Solid grounding in uh, you know, the fact that every sport is different and um, the, the chance of transmission do vary um, from sport to sport. So I think there's definitely value in that argument. And I think Mr. Yu has, uh, has hit the nail on the head with his comments there about um, open communication and um, being proactive about that communication as, as opposed to um, you know, awaiting um, reach out from the sports uh, industry when things hit a critical point. So, um, yeah, I would, I would echo Mr. Yu's sentiments on what, that. What, what, what difficulties in communication exactly have, has the sport sector have with the government? Um, well, I mean, I haven't actually been rallied myself too much, but I have seen, you know, certainly, for example, in the tennis, um, community, there's been widespread frustration about the closure of tennis courts when, you know, obviously it's a fairly social dis socially distant sport by its nature, um, and that's obviously caused a lot of uh, financial um, stress to those involved in that industry, and a lot of rallying to the government has been done in, in response to that. I think, um, obviously, you know, the demonstration, mini demonstration they held at Tamar that was quickly closed down was um, just indicative of the fact that that had gone to the point where it was... Um, you know, really desperate for those involved. And I think, you know, um, 
certainly to a different degree, everyone in the sports um, industry has felt um, you know, a similar stress over the last couple of years. Can you can you give us a sort of ballpark um, estimate of uh, the financial loss in the over the past two or three years in terms um, of promoting children's so, sport? Um, you know, I think again that varies from, from company to company and depending on what the sports um, they deliver and the age groups they deliver uh, for. Um, obviously, older sports generally you can you can do one on one training a little bit better when when children are doing you know football for a 15-year-old, uh, one-to-one training has a lot more value than perhaps, you know, a training, a one-on-one for a two-year-old. Or a value meaning like they're more expensive. Value value as in, as in more expensive. But valuable in terms of the, the, the athlete's development. And, um, you know, there's a lot more that you can teach a 14-year-old in a one-on-one session than perhaps a two-year-old, especially because they, their interest um, yeah. tends to attention lasts a little bit longer. Yeah, but I, I think um, my question was, you know, in, in terms of financial loss and sports sure, promotion, yeah. what ha- what does yeah, that mean? So what, what I was trying to get at there is, that, you know, some companies have completely stood still, ones that rely on big groups of, of um, athletes, you know, um, or, or kids together. Other ones have managed to, you know, take one-on-one training during the two-person rule, for example. But in terms of the financial loss, um, it's been pretty significant. I think, you know, um, we've seen... Um, when schools were actually out of session, but the COVID situation wasn't too serious, um, and kids were doing half days, then we actually did a, um, quite a lot of business during that period. Um, but it's definitely with the closure this year, especially um, with um, the situation in the first quarter of the year, and a lot of people leaving Hong Kong during the summer. It seems uh, we've had, you know, at least a fifty percent reduction this year in revenue to this point. Fifty percent, half. Fifty. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, and Mr. Patterson and Ms., uh, Mr. Yu, I know originally we were uh, going to talk to you until a quarter past nine. Uh, I hope you don't mind uh, staying on for a bit longer because uh, we were having a difficulty uh, tracking down our ant specialist that we promised uh, to talk to on this program, if that's OK. Um, Mr. Yu, I, I just want to go back uh, to talking about uh, interest in sport. Um, earlier in the program, our earlier guests, they talked about how um, sporting events or sport events are, are very important in promoting uh, interest in sport. I, I just want to get your view on that. I mean, what do you think of uh, interest in sport in Hong Kong right now? Um, I think the interest is still there. Um, but if we have to continue to delay any major sports events or, or cancel any sports events, uh, eventually uh, uh, some of the lo- uh, local events could be held overseas. And then um, I, I see that what's going to happen is some of our athletes might then be uh, participate in some of the overseas competitions in, instead of uh, competing locally. And I agree with you, by having those major events, it helps some of our athletes in Hong Kong to, to do a goal setting or a target setting that look, some of the races that are being held in Hong Kong, they're at national level um, so that you can target yourself or set a goal for yourself to participate in, in the future. But if we continue to see that disappearing from Hong Kong, it's certainly not a good sign for our athletes. Mr. Patterson, what's your view? Uh, yeah, I would agree. I think um, you know, the return of, of um, sporting events is key, something that's a point of inspiration for young athletes. Um, obviously, we have the Hong Kong Sevens coming up, um, but you know, a lot of the events in the past couple of years have been cancelled, you know, the, the, the Tennis Open, for example, um, as well as the Sevens. And I do think that um, you know, 
bigger events around schools. We're seeing more schools holding sports days um, and all planning sports days in the coming months. Um, so, you know, we really hope that we see the community around sport return in Hong Kong. And I think the signs are there that that will happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talk about swimming, uh, John Yu. Uh, obviously, one of most successful swimmer is Siobhan Hohe, the Olympian. When she won... Um, you know, I looked into her bio. Uh, she didn't train in Hong Kong at all. Now she represents Hong Kong. How can we provide the same sort of training in Hong Kong so that other swimmers can um, achieve the same standard? Um, she, she did. She did start her training in Hong Kong. Um, and then when she was studying in US, and that's the time that she spent the most of her training overseas, um, she also, uh, when she's in Hong Kong, she also trains with the national team in Hong Kong. Um, so what, what I would like to say is that I think um, we have to, once again, like I said before, we have to have a long-term development plan in place so that um, that involves all parties, not just the people involved in sports. It involves the government, the EDB, um, and also the Sports Institute, the three parties working together to come up with a long-term plan so that to how to nurture our young swimmers and keep them here and also to train them to reach national level and then compete in the Olympics or the Asian Games. I do believe that we have the resources of doing that. We just need um, help from all the parties, like I said, from the government, also from the relevant um, administration, um, um, from the SI and from all communities of clubs, if you know what I mean. What, what, what kind of help do you need from the government? We've got swimming pools, um, we've got coaches. Um, so I think the, uh, for now, I think um, uh, we still lack of facilities. Um, Although we do have quite a lot of swimming pools, but the time that are allocated for training is simply not enough. I think we have to um, review the current opening times and hours to see whether or not uh, more times or more um, days could be allocated to the local community clubs to um, sort of like conduct their training so that if you can build a bigger foundation, then we can always out more talent. If we only have a very small pool of swimmers, it's going to be very difficult. So I think um, regarding resources, uh, Hong Kong, we will need more facilities, more swimming pool, uh, because at the moment, um, we have one swimming pool in the Sports Institute that's for training only, and also we have another one is in Wan Chai that is for training purpose only. So if possible, of course, we would love to see more facilities built for training only. Right. And Mr. Yu, earlier you, you told us about uh, how many uh, secondary school students, uh, they uh, still don't know how to swim. Um, how bad is the situation? And do you, do you, have you heard about other coaches? What have they been saying? Uh, I, would, I would say yes. I, I do believe a lot of schools will see a similar situation when they uh, started this uh, new school year, having the new secondary student coming in. And if they conduct any PE lesson in swimming, they will realize that some of the ones that they had last with in the swimming program could be when they were in year four. Um, so again, uh, uh, other, other outside providers, the freelance coaches might be seeing more kids learning to swim at a slightly older age. For example, they might be having their first swimming lesson at the age of 11 or 12, rather than uh, they first started like at seven or eight. So I, w- I would say that that situation pretty much exists um, all around Hong Kong. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, so so, uh, Matt Peterson, John, you made an interesting point. He said, you know, the swimming pools are there. It's just that not enough 
time is allocated to training. What about in other sports? What about in rugby? And so I know that you know many many of these you know children's sport events are are held in、uh, public facilities. You know, in in Saikung, for example, every weekend there used to be you know、um, lots of rugby and soccer going on. Is booking the time in these facilities a, a, a barrier in promoting sport? Uh, so yeah, the stingrays, which you just touched upon there in Saikung,、um, do、um, very, very good work with their young,、uh, their youth rugby program. But I have spoken to a couple of parents that noticed、um, slightly lower numbers there.、Um, just touching on our previous points, with regards, to, I mean, I, I'm sure that's and again the factors that I pointed to earlier with them, you know, settling down the school schedules and all that kind of thing.、Um, in terms of booking facilities, that is a, this is certainly、um, a sticking point. I think it's very hard for.、Um, Consistent bookings to take place, which makes it extremely hard to use public facilities,、um, uh, you know, on a on a regular basis.、Um, so if people enrol for a course,、um, you have to essentially be booking the week ahead and fasting in the morning every single week for every booking you have. So that is a little bit tricky.、Um, but you know, if you look at the utilisation of the sports facilities in Hong Kong, it's actually very high.、Uh, oftentimes, it's it's very challenging to to get space. Um, which can be seen as a good thing because you know participation is that de- is definitely、um, is definitely there,、um, and I think、um, you know the ability for、um, special considerations to be made for longer term bookings would certainly help、um, the sports coaching industry. All right,、uh, Mr. Patterson, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning, and that's、uh, Matt Patterson, the founder of Mini Sport Hong Kong, and also、um, John Yu. Uh, a swimming coach. Also, many thanks to our guest presenter Jenny Lam and producer Yuki. Now here's the weather: sunny intervals with highs of around 31 degrees, winds moderate easterlies, fresh at first, and the outlook: sunny periods in the next couple of days, windy over the weekend. 28 degrees at the moment, relative humidity 73 percent. The Greater Bay Area provides even more choices for Hong Kong people. The modern transport network, with high-speed railways and highways, has brought the ten other cities of the Greater Bay Area into our living circle. Whether we're planning to spend our leisure time, buy a home, or to retire in the Greater Bay Area, policy measures are in place to make things easy 